Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In each episode, we bring you new ideas and insights from some of the greatest business and thought leaders to help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can be a great leader too. Here again is your host, best-selling author, speaker, and unconsultant, Bryce Hoffman. Hello, today my guest is Dr. Kevin Benson, Dean of the Red Team Thinking Academy, which provides comprehensive red team training and support to the U.S. and allied military, intelligence community, and national security agencies. Kevin is a retired U.S. Army colonel who is the director of the School of Advanced Military Studies, the Army's most elite institution for training strategic thinkers. So elite, in fact, that its graduates are often referred to as Jedi Knights. Kevin was also a senior instructor at the Army's University of Foreign Military and Cultural Studies at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, also known as Red Team University. He and I met there in 2015 when I became the first and only civilian from outside government to complete the Army's Red Team Leader course. Kevin was my instructor, and I came to know him as a deep, strategic thinker. But here's another fun fact about Kevin. He is literally the man who planned the invasion of Iraq, or at least who led the team that planned the ground component of the invasion. But as Kevin will describe to you in this conversation, things did not go according to that plan. I've asked him to talk about that experience because I think the important and frankly painful lessons the U.S. military learned in Iraq have real relevance for many businesses and for many business leaders today. Kevin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bryce. I'm looking forward to it. So, Kevin, can you tell our listeners what exactly was your role in planning the invasion of Iraq and planning Operation Iraqi Freedom? I'd be happy to. I served as the J-5, which is the assistant chief of staff for plans at the 3rd U.S. Army, which is the headquarters that served as the Combined Forces Land Component Command. The headquarters responsible for all of the land forces, conventional land forces, I should say, under the overall command of U.S. Central Command, General Tommy Franks. And what was your job? What was your mission? When I arrived in the headquarters in June of 02, my role was to direct the development of the major operation plan, which essentially was the land invasion uh, of Iraq uh, that we would conduct on order, essentially when the president directed, and everything that uh, encompassed uh, all of the land operations. So we interacted with uh, the Air Force in terms of the development of what to bomb and what not. We worked with the Navy in terms of uh, doing everything from mine sweeping the Shat al-Arab to the port of uh, Umm Qasr near Basra to the defense of the arrival of our uh, very essential uh, sea lift of all of our forces uh, and the integration of Navy ships into the overall air defense of the region. And then, of course, worked with special operations forces because the land forces initially were focused on a zone of operations leading toward Baghdad and beyond. 
and essentially the special forces operated in the rest of the country. So it was putting together all of the moving parts of land operations and you know, close to a couple hundred thousand troops, uh, moving them from Europe, the United States, uh, by sea, by air, into Kuwait, getting them established on the ground, and then starting the fight and sustaining the fight all the way through Baghdad until uh, the end of the operation when we handed over to another headquarters. And, and that's an important point for people to understand, which is that, that, that your planning responsibilities ended with the victory in the initial ground war. Is that a, a fair way of characterizing it? it, it kind of. The, uh, the source of my personal frustration, frankly, was uh, folks focused on getting to Baghdad. And we wrote, I always tell folks, a total plan, which included the so-called phase four, uh, which was you know, how we actually conclude the operation and win, if you will, where we would attain the policy objectives uh, that the president uh, set out for us. And, and of course, uh, the glitzy, high-speed uh, news-worthy, video-worthy efforts was the drive up to Baghdad. And it was afterward that things sort of fell apart, uh, although at least they were apparently falling apart. And we all took a breath and tried to figure out what do we do now. That was frustrating for me. So let's talk about the different phases. Okay. So what was phase one? I'm happy to tell you. Phase one was essentially getting ready to go to the fight. That was moving forces into country. That was the diplomatic effort of ensuring that we had overflight rights and communication structures were set up. Uh, it was everything we needed to do. Essentially, phase one was called prepare. And phase two? Phase two, uh, and I'll get you the exact title from the campaign plan, was called Shaping the Battle Space. By the plan, phase two was supposed to begin on D-Day, the day the president told us to start, and was estimated to last 16 days. Now, of course, it didn't, but this was the plan. Uh, by shaping the battle space, that was to complete the destruction of Iraqi air defense, disrupt Iraqi command and control, essentially win control of the air, and to reduce Iraqi uh, command and control to nothing, so that essentially, when phase three began, we were facing ill-coordinated, unprepared, and somewhat uh, shattered forces en route to Baghdad. And phase three then was? The title of phase three in the plan was called Decisive Operations. We anticipated in some of the wargaming that we did that this could last up to 125 days. Uh, and its purpose was to complete the removal of the Saddam regime. So without getting into a judgment call about whether the, the, the decision to go to war was correct or not, because that's not the job of the military. The job right. of the military is to, is to execute the orders given to it by the civilian leaders. Phase one, 
phase two and phase three were pretty much unqualified successes, weren't they? Yes, I think they were. And that, I think, speaks to the strategic prowess of you and your team and the other planners that those were so successful, obviously, as well as the the, the personal bravery and, and commitment of, of the folks fighting in the field on the air, on land and sea. Uh, I absolutely agree. So what happened in phase four? Well, phase four, you know, here were the objectives from the campaign plan that we've established a safe environment with a provisional government established, that the country and that provisional government was capable of defending its own territorial borders and maintaining internal security, that the territorial integrity of Iraq was intact, that all military, civil military operation activities were transitioned to either the Iraqi government, non-governmental organizations, or international organizations, that there was no longer any WMD, and that terrorists and war criminals were detained and individuals unjustly detained under Iraqi, the Iraqi regime were freed, and that we would begin to redeploy our forces. What happened? Well, this is Kevin Benson's perspective. We had prepared a plan called COBRA II. We'd handed that plan over from the planners to the folks who were going to execute it. And the planners, in accord with the way all of us were educated and our duty, looked at phase four to continue refining the how-to of phase four. Now, how would we establish a provisional government or support the establishment of it? How would we ensure the territorial integrity? All of those steps. And the more my planners and I war-gamed phase four, the more complex we saw that it was becoming. And what do I mean by complex? I mean that as we looked at what the opposition might do, we determined that there was going to be a range of enemy, that there would be Shia groups, Sunni groups, international terror groups that would come in to the country to take advantage of the unrest. There would be the remnants of Saddam's military. There might have been Iranian uh, folks coming in to keep the pot stirred. The Kurds might conduct operations against the Turks, and the Turks would then respond. And when you war game, you have to take into account all of those potential actions and reactions. And as we did that, then we realized that there was also going to be the actions and reactions of this the Iraqis themselves, the folks that wanted to have some level of, I, well, I don't know a better word to use, but some kind of normality, some kind of safety, uh, so that goods could, you know, trade would be continued, that goods and services would be transacted, that schools would be back in place, the university would reopen. And so as we wargamed, instead of the traditional there's a blue, the good guys, action, and red, his counteraction, and then, or his reaction, and then blue counteraction. We had to consider there was a range of blue in phase four because there was US and the coalition of the willing and every 
coalition member came in with its own rules of engagement. There was a range of red, given all of the different opposition groups we felt would be there. And then there was a range of blue Shia groups that wanted to assert some autonomy, Sunni groups that were living in the West or had been the dominant uh, sect and tribes uh, under Saddam, the Kurds who wanted to have uh, some level of autonomy. And we had to take into account all of those reactions to U.S. and coalition actions. And it was the most complex wargaming I'd ever done in my career. And yet you, it yielded a plan. It yes, yielded a way forward that yes, you felt pretty good about. Yes, right? we did. The initial statement of Cobra Two, Phase 4 and Cobra Two, and then the second plan that we developed called Eclipse 2. I mean, I felt it was okay. We knew that things would change and we would have to react, but I felt good about handing that over as at least a start point. One of the things that you guys didn't work in because it was so out of left field, as I understand it, was the arrival of Paul Bremer in Baghdad. Well, that's, that's true. <laughs> you know, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Garner was there with his organization uh, that, who came in and I truly did not anticipate that Ambassador Bremer uh, would come in uh, empowered by uh, the Vice President and Secretary of Defense to be, you know, for lack of a better term, the proconsul. We'd anticipated that there would be some civilian-led organization for whom we would work. You know, there is no, there was no ambassador, uh, so we figured there'd be someone, but we had no idea that it would be Ambassador Bremer and some of the decisions that he he took or was empowered to take or the guidance that he got from Washington. And and within a minutes. very short time, minutes of Paul <laughs> Bremer arriving in a business suit and combat boots in Baghdad. It was an interesting look. Key elements of your strategy were basically thrown out of the window without any warning to the army. And the truth, truth. I did not know that the first thing that, you know, the first general order or proclamation he made was going to be, you know, the disestablishment of the Ba'ath Party. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, but that anyone who was ever a member of the Ba'ath Party could no longer play a role in the new Iraqi government just was totally unexpected. And then the next one being that uh, the regular army is disestablished and we'd rebuild it from scratch. Again, we did not anticipate those things. And why were those such big deals in terms of, of, of throwing a wrench into the plan? Well, in all of our preliminary work on, and the study that we really did, we determined and other experts told us this. This wasn't just Kevin Benson and a handful of majors and lieutenant colonels coming up with this. Other experts that with whom we coordinated uh, told us that there were two institutions in Iraq that predated the Ba'ath Party, the bureaucracy and the regular army. Uh, those were established 
uh, in the aftermath of World War I under the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and they had British traditions. And we felt, and, and actually we didn't make these assumptions, we took those to be facts that we could recall the bureaucracy and the regular army, and that they would join the effort at rebuilding Iraq without Saddam. Now, we could have been naive. I don't know. But that was, I felt that was good enough. Authorities telling us that, uh, that we accepted those as fact. And thus, we tailored our information operations and all the other messaging that we sent out along those lines, that don't fight us, be a part of the new Iraq. And, you know, that's how we started out. And I vividly remember as, as someone like a lot of folks glued to his television set during the, the drive to, to Baghdad, seeing live footage of Iraqi commanders surrendering their forces to U.S. officers and the U.S. officers shaking their hands, telling them your men fought bravely, you have nothing to be ashamed of tell your men to go and see to their families and, and basically report back for work in a, in a month and help let's get back to work rebuilding the country. It was, it was interesting. You know, I, was, I was head down in, in my part of the headquarters, <laughs> war gaming phase four. Uh, so I heard those reports as well. I was happy because I took that as an indication that the information operations that we'd conducted were somewhat successful. And not only did those pair of decisions deprive military planners, at least with, with two key resources of personnel that were going to help with phase four, help with the task of stabilizing and rebuilding the country. But right there and then you had a lot of promises broken. And a lot of people have pointed to that as the, as the point at which things began to turn in a bad direction. Well, I, I cannot gainsay those observations because that, that was my experience as well. I felt blindsided. There was, a, and I participated in a presentation to a Mr. Walt Slocum, who was the uh, Ambassador Bremer's uh, lead uh, man, if you will, uh, at the new Iraqi Ministry of Defense. And it came to a point in the presentation, and I told him point blank that we had officers on the ground and soldiers on the ground who were surveying Iraqi army bases. And we were talking to Iraqi general officers about bringing their troops back. And were we still acting in accord with policy? Because that was, poli that was okay as far as policy goes, as far as I knew. And Mr. Slocum looked at me and said, thanks for the briefing, Colonel. And and, and I was taken aback, and I said, I restated. I said, excuse me, Mr. Secretary, perhaps I wasn't clear, and I restated. And he said the same thing. He said, no, I got it. Thanks for the briefing, Colonel. And I looked at General McKiernan, and I looked at our chief of staff, and they both looked at me and kind of shrugged their shoulders. And so the, the entourage leaves, and my uh, officers looked at me and said, what, what does that mean? Colonel B. And I said, it beats me. Well, it was a little bit more colorful than that, but <laughs> it, you know, I said, it, it beats me. I don't know what that means, but I, I think we're, I think we're in for some hard times. Wow. And obviously that, that, uh, 
was an understatement. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> there's been a lot of hard times since then. Yes. Now, one good thing that came out of the hard times that followed that decision, for lack of a better word, was a recognition in the U.S. Army that there had been limitations to the strategy and planning and decision-making tools that had been used to solve the problem of Iraq, so to speak. Yes. And that led to the development of red teaming, of decision support red teaming in, yes, in the U.S. Army. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how that came about and, and what informed the decision to create this concept of decision support red teaming? Yeah. Insofar as, as I know, because I was on active duty until 2007, and the school started a couple of years before I retired, when General Schumacher was brought back from retirement to become the chief of staff of the Army. You know, that was his assessment, was that we were thinking, we were constrained in our thinking by what he termed the gravitational pull of Western military thought. And he wanted someone, some entity, to help break that gravitational pull of Western military thought. Not that there's anything bad about it, but we were so constrained by it that we were not thinking more broadly. And that was then the genesis, or at least the initial guidance, for the establishment of the Army's Red Team School, the University of Foreign Military and Cultural Studies. Where you ultimately became an instructor and I ultimately became one of your students. Yes, indeed. It was, <laughs> it was a, a great... Uh, ten, I spent 10 years teaching and watched the evolution of the school and the curricula and the introduction of methods. But that was the, the start point was we'd become so focused on our decision-making process, we, were no, we weren't thinking. We were checking the box and following the format. And that is something that I think a lot of our listeners in the business world will relate to. This idea of checking the box, of following the written process, the stated process, and it becoming basically a series of calisthenic exercises rather than something that is really getting you at the end state that you want, which is to make better decisions in a complex. Absolutely. You know, recognizing that, you know, everyone was fond of saying the enemy gets a vote, for example. Yes. Well, <laughs> okay. So what? What does that mean? <laughs> and no one could really answer that question. We were very good at articulating the most dangerous, least likely, most likely enemy course of action. But when we got into what does that mean to us? What can we expect? How do we counter that? How do we adapt? We were we weren't doing a really good job of, and it's not that we were anticipating and telling the future. It was fostering the mental agility 
to look at alternative perspectives. And I think that's what we got to when we were do, when we were teaching, when I had the privilege of teaching at UFMCS. How did the failure to look at alternative perspectives impact some of the decisions that were made in the planning of the of the invasion and the war that that if you could go back and and and, and rewrite them you'd rewrite how how did how did the failure to look at alternative perspectives negatively impact the planning process that is a great question believe me i've tortured myself with with uh, those kind of uh, thoughts uh, over the years i always go back and i look at the assumptions that we made and frankly it wasn't the assumptions for let me give you a for example Sure. Uh, on assumptions. We assumed, for example, that Kuwaiti sea and airports of debarkation would remain open for the duration of the campaign. That was one of our, that, that's a direct planning assumption that we made. We assumed, let me find it from the campaign plan at the CENTCOM level that, oh, come on, Kevin, here we go, uh, that Kuwait, Qatar, and Oman would grant full overflight and basing support. You know, that, and that's pretty straightforward. And, and in fact, they did to, to a certain extent. All of uh, the Jordanians would offer full overflight basing support and transportations and supplies to support humanitarian relief. That was an assumption that these Jordanians would let us do that. Yep, sure did. What's an assumption that didn't quite come true? We assumed that the Turks would give us full overflight basing for aircraft, special operating forces, ground forces, transportation and supplies to support humanitarian relief, uh, etc. And, of course, we all know that the Turks did not allow us to come through their country with conventional ground forces and essentially attack from another direction. Never questioned that assumption, frankly even though none of us who were planning felt like the Turks were going to let us do that anyway. And the more we studied that uh, approach from the North, we realized it really wasn't really that feasible for a whole host of technical reasons. But we didn't ask ourselves, what if that assumption doesn't become fact? Now, I'll tell you what I would do uh, if I could go back, you know, that famous, if I could do it over again, I would have questioned some of my facts. I would have asked myself, like I told you, gee, what if the policy objectives uh, change and we can't recall the Iraqi army? What does that mean? Now, I'm not saying that that would have caused a difference because we are an arm of the executive branch and it's civilian control of the U.S. military is ingrained in our DNA. So, you know, I'm not saying that things would have changed, but I would have been better armed to go back and arm my commander with talking points about, you know, geez, if you limit us to crossing the line of departure, you know, beginning the fight with the 3rd Infantry Division and the 1st Marine Division, uh, we're going to need an awful lot more troops given the policy objectives you told us that we had to do, had to at least attain the military conditions for those. And since we can't recall the Iraqi army, this is why. This is what it will take to 
establish a secure environment and all the other things. Uh, so I certainly would have done that. And it never, honest to God, it never even occurred to me to do things like that because once our assumptions were approved, I almost literally wiped the sweat from my brow and thank God I got that through the boss. Uh, let's move on to the tough stuff. There were also assumptions made about how the Iraqi civilian population would perceive or react to the actions of, of coalition forces. Those were assumptions, not in the sense of what soldiers took. You know, a lot of those emanated from Washington. I mean, I heard folks say that, that yeah. the, we'll be welcomed with open arms. Uh, I assure you that no soldier made that assumption. We figured that even if the Shia were, would accept us the best we could expect, given the performance at the end of the first Gulf War and how the Shia were beaten down and we didn't do anything, uh, that it would be benign indifference and that we would have to prove ourselves to the Shia in order to get them to support us. But I did hear folks say, Oh, the Iraqis will welcome us with open arms. The Kurds will welcome us with open arms. The Iraqis will pay for their own recovery because they'll, they'll want to get back to business and pump oil. I, I heard policymakers, Senate staffers say things like that. Wow. So how could red teaming help deal with some of these these blind spots, with some of these unchecked assumptions, untested hypotheses. What what could red teaming have done to help make a better plan? Well, I think our planning could have been better. And you know, if I to jump ahead in time a little bit, sure. when I went back to Baghdad in 2010 and 2011, and helped to develop the plan to, now I wasn't responsible for it, I helped a bunch of great folks develop how to leave by the end of 2011. Having come from the Red Team School, I did insist on using some of the Red Team methods that, I could in, it, that we could inject into the planning process. And I think the plan was much better. What, for example, Kevin? Well, yes. by God, we did stress test our assumptions. We did ask, what if, at a minimum, what if this assumption does not become fact? How does that change our plan? We did use the four ways of seeing method and ask the questions of how do we see ourselves as Americans? How do we see Al Sadr's people? How do we see uh, the Kurds, how do they see us? How do they see themselves? And tease out some of that nuance so that when we structured our tasks, they were better stated we, when we developed our information operations to tell folks what was happening, both external audiences and internal. I, I think that went much better. To include talking back to the administration at the time, 2010, 2011, trying to anticipate their questions uh, and, and what would they want. 
So that's what we would have done, Bryce. Uh, apply these great methods because when I went back in 2010, one, I knew about them, two, I taught them, and three, I knew they worked. That's so fascinating. I mean, you are one of the few people in the world who've had an opportunity to to plan a major military operation without the benefit of these tools and to help plan a major military operation with the benefit of these tools yeah. and yeah. see the difference. Yeah. And again, I will never claim that we were perfect. For example, in all of the, when we did a pre-mortem, because we did do a pre-mortem for the, the operation to depart. Yes. No, no one anticipated the Arab Spring. Sure. No one did. You know, there were, there were a whole host of other things that we thought about that we tried to incorporate and do all of the things that we talked about. Gee, if we think that the weather is going to impact, how can we, what steps can we take to mitigate? Geez, uh, there's going to be an Arab summit that's going to be in Baghdad. How might that affect what's going on? What do we need to look for? And we took steps like that. And folks really did embrace it. You know, was it perfect? Of course not. There's nothing perfect. But I think things went a lot better. We even asked, you know, anticipate that, gee, uh, you know, the guidance is the last American boot leaves the ground 31 December 2011. And then we all kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, but someone is going to say, leave early. What's that going to look like? But we asked the question and we developed answers. And you've not only had an opportunity to use these tools to plan a major military operation, you've had an opportunity to use them in some other ways that are, that are equally powerful. One I want to ask you about, it, if I can, is the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. Oh, yeah. Now, Talk about red teaming the All-Star Game. Now, and, and again, truth be told, I did not personally do that. That was not my red team course seminar. However, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. So, but I set it up. I really did. I will claim credit for that. I set it up. Uh, I made, I reached out to the Kansas City Police Department and all of that. And, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, I think you met him, Bill Greenberg, Bill's seminar. Yes. Were the folks who actually did this. Uh, the best story that came out of that was these folks in the seminar, you know, army officers, majors, combat veterans, uh, you know, the kind of folks that we had in our course, as you know, they did a pre-mortem. What would cause Kansas City's plans to secure the uh, Major League Baseball All-Star Game to fail? And they came up with that everyone is operating on a different radio frequency, police, fire, FBI, Major League Baseball security, uh, you know, Secret Service, who knows, county sheriff, state police. What happens if somebody jams either deliberately or inadvertently your combo is jammed? And, and the story that Bill told was they came to their final presentation. There were representatives of all those agencies in the conference room where the seminar went. Uh, everything was received really well. And then they posed the question about communications and got a storm of, you know, that's malarkey, that won't happen, we're too good, 
nobody knows what frequencies we're on anyway, blah, blah, blah. And a special forces officer in the seminar said, well, I know the FBI transmits on, you know, this frequency, this frequency, KCPD, KCFD, you know, and so on and so on. And like, there was consternation. How do you know that? Well, I said, well, I, I looked on the internet. And also, <laughs> you say you can't be jammed? Yes, you can. There's a device. And then he took it from his kit bag, put it on the table. and said, I bought this at, I want to say Radio Shack, but it might have been another store that, whose name is just slipping from my memory. But a locally, a local store easily procured radio intercept device that would also serve as a jammer. Uh, he said that you know, anybody can do this if they want to. What are you going to do if that happens? And it materially affected the security plan for the Major League, uh, all, the Major League Baseball All Star Game when it came to Kansas City. And of course, nothing happened, thankfully. But this was a contribution that was made. I mean, red teaming works. What can other organizations that are not involved in uh, affecting regime change in, in <laughs> foreign countries or uh, even securing major sporting events learn from these experiences, do you think? Well, I think, as, as, as we've seen, I think that military and, and security police and all that can learn a great deal because there are decision-making processes. But I would offer that any company civilian company in business, even if they don't have a well-defined decision-making process, they fall into a pattern of decision-making that becomes rote, that we've always done it this way, it's gonna work, let's just get after it. And no one asks, what if? And I'm not saying that we could anticipate another pandemic, but I'll bet you that if someone had, they kind of would have kind of figured out, geez, how do we operate under a condition that really disrupts, say, interstate commerce, uh, just-in-time deliveries of logistics, acts that affect our workforce, avian flu, for example. For sure. You know, things like that. Anyone or any organization that has, that has to take decisions to conduct a business can benefit from, the, from learning about and applying the methods of red team thinking. Obviously, I agree. And I've seen that myself. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I think that a lot of times people are surprised that they've not heard of this, that, they, that, that they're not familiar with it. And it's, it's because... While I think these tools and techniques are, are widely known and widely used in the military w world, in the intelligence world, they, they are only beginning to be understood and used at a real scale in the business world. Uh -huh. And I think that's the opportunity that a lot of organizations have is to, to learn about these and apply them. Interestingly enough, though, as, a, as effective as this has been, the the Pentagon just took the decision to close the U.S. Army's red teaming university, to close the University of Foreign Military Cultural Studies, where, where you were an instructor and where I was a student. What does that do to the ability of 
the the military to to train future red teamers? Well, I would imagine, since I've been retired now for a long time, uh, that the what am I what would I try to say? Uh, not an excuse, but an explanation would be, well, we all do critical thinking anyway. Any good staff officer does that, and we incorporate that into all of our existing curricula and courses at the staff college, which Kevin Benson thinks is malarkey. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah. I'm, I'm sure I've heard that. I know that was probably one of the explanations because everyone's anticipating uh, budget decreases and where do you look uh, to cut budget? Well, you look at, at places that really don't have a uh, multi-starred uh, general officer advocate. And that's so unfortunate because it's, it's not only proved so effective in the military, it's, it's really popular with officers who want to learn how to be better leaders and better decision makers, right? Truly is. Truly so, is. So we, you and I, and, and some of our colleagues are going to try to fill that gap. And we have established the Red Team Thinking Academy to provide military and intelligence community and national security agencies with red team training and support to make sure that these good ideas, to make sure that these great concepts continue to be taught, continue to be learned and continue to be used. And you, Kevin, are serving as the Dean of the Red Team Thinking Academy. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud that you asked me to do that. What do you think the opportunity is to go beyond the formal red teaming model that the Army had been teaching at UFMCS and, and put these tools and techniques in the hands of, of more frontline leaders, of more decision makers? How do you well, think that can help? Well, I'm fortunate enough to, be, uh, to participate in the development of you know, new approaches to Army doctrine, Former students asked me to help, and so I do. But just a casual reading of any newspaper uh, online or holding it in your hand, a paper form with a cup of coffee, will give you an idea of call the world more and more complicated, call it complex, call it perplexing. But the range of factors and forces that are at play that will influence uh, decision makers. It will exert pressure on populations or audiences or customers. You need to have some methods that we know work that will bring that nuance into decision making. And not following uh, a particular form, but offering methods that people can take and insert into their decision-making processes, you know, without the, you know, the formal writ of doctrine saying, oh, it's doctrine, this must go at this point and at step two and at step three A, <laughs> but apply it where you see it makes the most sense. And I think that's what we'll be able to offer, focused on the, the immediate applicability and utility of selected methods that will enhance decision-making, help leaders 
make better decisions. Absolutely. And we've seen it work with, with businesses. And I love that, that we've gotten to this point now where we've learned these tools and techniques from the military, from the intelligence community. We've taken them to the business world. We've applied them in the, in the business world. We've, we've evolved them as a reaction to what worked and what didn't work as well. And now there's an opportunity to have that feedback into the military and into the intelligence community, into national security agencies, and build on what they are already know and what they're already doing. And I, I, I'd love to see that process continue because I think business has so much to learn from the military and the military has so much to learn from business. And uh, I agree. And I think that you and I and our colleagues can help. I'd like to end by asking you, as someone who has put together some truly daunting plans and strategies in the face of tremendous complexity and tremendously high stakes. You have one piece of advice that you would give to people working on strategy in these increasingly complex and uncertain times that you described. What would it be? Be humble. If you don't know something, ask. And if you're the senior person in the room, that does not mean necessarily you're the smartest person in the room. Empower those smart people to help you. And critical thinking methods that you and I are familiar with and present will help doing that. That's great, Kevin. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, you are most welcome. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. To subscribe to Bryce's free newsletter, visit his website, brycehoffman.com. And don't forget to follow Bryce on social media. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bryce Hoffman, all one word. That's B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And to learn more about Bryce's company, Red Team Thinking, visit us at redteamthinking.com. <laughs>